It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Here we go with Malia Jacobson as your host. Hello and welcome to Sleep Well, Stay Well. I'm your host, sleep and health journalist, Malia Jacobson. It's back to school season, and that means a return to an early morning alarm clock for most parents and kids, even if it is for remote learning and not for in-person instruction this fall. I've heard of middle schoolers and high schoolers with remote classes starting as early as 6.30 a.m., so remote learning definitely does not mean sleeping in, unfortunately, and that will definitely be a shock to the system after uh, months of uh, quarantine summer and sleeping all over the place around the clock um, and not having to get up early. This year, it's going to be a particularly unique challenge because many kids have not been in a structured um, school schedule since March. Uh, And so a return to a more structured school pace, which many schools are implementing this fall, um, even with remote learning, will be uh, quite a shock because we have been out of that routine since early spring. So it will be an adventure. Uh, Classes start for my kids next week, uh, many kids this week, and many uh, other parts of the country have already been in class for a few weeks. So we are off on this new adventure of uh, the next phase of remote learning. And I get a lot of questions this time of year, every year, about getting onto a back-to-school sleep schedule, how parents can help their kids help make those first weeks of school a little less stressful, um, help everyone to be able to get up in the morning, reduce the tension and stress for families in the morning, um, and just get the school year off to a better start. Um, And so I wanted to bring someone on who could speak to this and I think I found a great expert. My guest today is Dr. Scott T. Bonvillet, MD. He's medical director of the Overlake Sleep Disorder Center in Bellevue, Washington. He's board certified in sleep medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and internal medicine. He's been in private practice for more than 15 years. He's been recognized multiple times as a top doctor by Seattle Magazine and Seattle Metropolitan Magazine. He is the father of three grown children, and he's a six-time Ironman Canada competitor, so he knows the importance of uh, getting rest for recovery as an athlete, as a parent, and um, in his specialty as a sleep physician. So let's go ahead and get him on the line and talk back-to-school sleep. Dr. Bombalay, hello and welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is a busy time of year. We're heading into September and school is starting next week for kids in my area. Um, we're, I think, one of the last um, areas around the country to start school. It seems like everyone else has started school already, but this is the big week for a lot of folks around here and the next week. Um, is as well. So this is a big topic that we're talking about, getting back to a school year sleep routine. It is something that parents always have questions about this time of year. Um, I know I get a lot of questions about how do I get my kids waking up for school again after summer, but this year we're dealing with things in a pandemic environment and remote schooling, which just adds another layer. So um, Dr. Bombalay, before this year, kind of under normal circumstances, 
what were, were some of the issues or, or questions that you would see this time of year around getting kids back on their school year sleep routine? Right. Well, I think that um, historically the, the biggest issue that kids really of all ages have as it pertains to starting up the school year is readjusting their internal clock right. such that during summertime, most kids are typically going to bed later and waking up later. And part of the reason for that is that biologically, it's been shown that about 80% of kids between the ages of six and 18 years um, prefer to have, as we call it, a, a more delayed sleep phase. That is typically <laughs> wanting to go to bed at so least- that's doctor speak for bedtime avoidance, right? <laughs> Pardon me? Like, I said that's doctor language for bedtime avoidance or late uh, night owl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, they definitely biologically want to go to bed uh, you know, no sooner than 10 p.m. and often midnight. And then, of course, want to get up later because if they're getting up at six or seven in the morning, they've only slept maybe seven or eight hours. And the thing that's also important to realize is that younger kids, including teenagers, need more sleep um, than we do as adults. And as you get progressively older, starting in your elementary school years, your sleep need decreases. But for example, teenagers, uh, it's been shown need at least about nine hours of sleep to, so to speak, fill the tank. And so you show me a teenager that gets nine hours of sleep per night and, and I would be quite shocked having had teenagers myself. So, um, so one of the things that then happens is that these kids are starting up school, they have to revert to a different schedule where they're going to bed earlier and waking up earlier. And that, that's an adjustment that, that takes a while uh, for it to, to work uh, efficiently. Right, and I, I have heard and read different things in terms of how long it takes our bodies to adjust to that type of time change, um, whether we're traveling across time zones or whether we just suddenly need to get up earlier than we've been getting up. Um, what is that time frame? I mean, I've, I've heard that for adults, it can be about a week to adjust your circadian rhythm, but for kids, maybe about half that time. Um, what's your perspective on that? Or is it just something that varies yeah, so much it's, from person to person? It depends on the individual. Um, it's, it's for sure more difficult to uh, adjust your sleep schedule counterclockwise than it is clockwise. And so that's part of the reason that people don't do as well uh, when they travel from west to east versus east to west. Um, and the relative rule of thumb is that it takes about two days per hour shift in your schedule. So if, for example, you've been going to bed at 1 a.m. and waking up at 9 a.m. and now you're wanting to go to bed at 10 p.m. and wake up at 6 a.m., it's gonna take at least six days on that schedule 
um, before you start sleeping, you know, efficiently or the majority of that period. So for a bit, those first few days, folks are going to have troubles, particularly getting to sleep. So about a week sounds about right. Okay. All right. Thank you. So for this year, as we head into um, the last few days of summer, or for some folks, the first week or so of the school year, um, we may be looking at a kind of a different challenge when it comes to getting kids up early enough for class, because for a lot of us, the school year schedule just completely was upended in March, and a lot of families, understandably, let sleep routines go and kids were sleeping much later, staying up much later. It was just too stressful to stay on top of getting everyone to bed at a decent hour. Teenagers, I heard a lot of stories of teenagers just sleeping so much to make up really for the, the exhaustion that happens during the normal school year. All of a sudden they didn't have to get up at 5 a.m. anymore and they were sleeping and their parents were letting them sleep. So. Um, kids have had a longer stretch without a morning alarm clock, um, maybe than they would have had during a normal summer. Um, and so that might be one challenge that parents are facing this time is it's, it's been even longer since kids have really had to get up. But this fall, a lot of school districts are being very um, communicative about the schedule that there is going to be a hard start to the school day an early morning. Um, Zoom call, an early morning class accountability is a big buzzword um, for remote learning this fall. So everyone does need to get up, whether, whether or not they have set an alarm clock in months. So that's kind of a unique challenge. Are there any other sort of unique challenges or aspects to this problem, um, particular to this year and the pandemic and a return to remote schooling? Well, it, it also applies to the parents' schedules. So one of the things that we right. were seeing in, uh, you know, adults during the pandemic, uh, most of which are now working remotely, is that they as well have reverted to a different schedule that is more often than not going to bed later, waking up later, um, other things that have affected people's sleep during the pandemic include not as much exercise and, and sunlight exposure. And so I think as it pertains to having kids that are starting schools, I think that parents need to themselves, if they can simulate a work schedule similar to what they were on before the pandemic, um, because otherwise, if they're sleeping in late and going to bed late, that's, of course, going to affect uh, how their kids go to sleep and their sleep patterns. So I think that, that that's um, important that the you know, parents you know, are good role models as it pertains to good sleep hygiene. Um, I think also with regards to it being summertime, one of the things that uh, even though we're going into fall, is that it's still, it's still light out, you know, till at least 8 p.m. And so um, as hard as it's going to be for some kids is to, you know, minimize light exposure after dinner time because that's going to affect your ability to get to sleep at the more desired earlier time. And that'll change, of course, as we advance into the fall when it gets dark earlier. So, so that's another factor that um, 
can help affect uh, transition back to an earlier sleep schedule. Right. I, I think we're at about the perfect point when it comes to light exposure right now in September here in Washington. It's light right about maybe 6 a.m., dark right about maybe 8. It changes so quickly, and I talk about it all the time, <laughs> and, and it is different for different um, parts of the country, um, but it is something that I'm really affected by light exposure and um, have such trouble sleeping in June when we're at our peak daylight. Um, and a lot of kids and particularly sensitive people, I think, share that struggle. Um, but then right now, it's like it's light enough to take a family walk after dinner, but it's still dark enough to fall asleep, you know, right. at, a, at a decent time. But that window is just so, so brief. <laughs> we head into the dark, dark months. So, yeah, it's a whole different challenge with that. Um, so when we spoke last um, about uh, kids and sleep. Um, I interviewed you for an article on a similar topic. Um, you mentioned that there are some sleep disorders in children that can actually worsen during the summer and that parents need to kind of play catch up um, when school resumes. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so again, there's this circadian rhythm disorder that we call delayed sleep phase syndrome where it's been described in about 5% of teenagers. So they're the most susceptible. And that's where biologically these kids literally cannot get to sleep before 3 a.m. And so when school starts and they're having to get up and go to school or show up for homeroom at 7 or 7.15 a.m., they've only slept at most four hours. And Things that make that worse are, for example, weekends where these kids are things that we can do to fix the problem, which I'll go into, but um, on Friday and Saturday nights, often these kids will then, because they don't have to go to school, stay up late and then sleep in late. And then that basically negates some of the progress that's been made during the week. And during the summer months, most of these kids are on a more delayed schedule. So they in particular will have difficulties um, adjusting to a school schedule. And some of the things that we do with these kids treatment wise is we will have them stay on the same schedule seven days per week, which of course meets a fair amount of resistance from the, from the teenagers, at least for a while. And then often this is a scenario where supplements such as melatonin are helpful in that melatonin is a chemical or a neurotransmitter that the brain makes um, typically about two hours before our biologic sleep time. That is the time that, that we naturally want to fall asleep. And so kids with this delayed sleep phase syndrome have been shown not to make melatonin until several hours after their desired bedtime. So supplemental melatonin is helpful in these kids. And then this is where light exposure in the morning is helpful. And sometimes, uh, particularly in the winter months, we'll recommend that they get like a light box. Uh, and the, what the light boxes do is that they emit a spectrum of sunlight 
that is in the blue light range that has been shown to stimulate a receptor in the back of the eye or in the retina that then sends a signal to the brain to wake up. And so exposure to light in the morning sort of pings the, the internal clock that this is wake up time, even though naturally they don't wanna wake up for an, another two plus hours. And then melatonin on the back end helps sort of ping when it's time to start preparing to go to sleep. So people like that in particular have this uh, difficulties, particularly getting back to school. And so um, already I've seen a lot of these patients uh, in the last month where they did well, they were back on a schedule, not having too much difficulties getting to sleep at 10 or 11 p.m. But summer has come around and COVID and their sleep habits have changed. And so even though they know what they need to do, they find it helpful to come in to see me to emphasize that they know what to do um, and uh, get back on track. Right, and I imagine you hear from a lot of parents too, because you're working with families, the parents and the teens. What, how do you help someone who just says, Dr. Bombalee, I cannot get my child out of bed? I mean, I've heard horror stories of, you know, literally dragging teenagers out of bed and going back and forth and back and forth. And some parents are working remotely from home, but some actually aren't. Many parents are kind of trying to supervise from afar if they have an essential job aren't able to physically do do that, um, physically go into their teen's room. How do you help your patients who tell you, look, I am trying, but I cannot get his feet on the ground in the morning? Well, that's easier said than done. It depends on the, on the age. For example, you know, younger kids are responsive to some type of reward system. If, for example, you say to them that they can, you know, that, that if they're able to get out of bed when the alarm goes off and mom or dad don't need to assist them in getting out of bed, that there'll be some reward at the end of the week. Now, there are some kids and most often teenagers where it isn't a matter of responding to a reward, but rather that they just have troubles waking up uh, in, in the morning and, and you have to literally pull them out of bed to get them to get up and, and get ready for school. Um, it, there's not an easy solution to that question. There's some um, enthusiasm out there for, as they call them, dawn simulators. That's where um, you can get, whether it's a regular lamp or a blue light, like what I talked about, that um, has a timer on it that starts to turn on 30 to 60 minutes before the desired wake time. So that's one thing that um, some people have had good success with. Um, others, the kids sleep right through that. Um, again, ensuring that they have gone to bed at least seven or eight hours before the desired waking time. Um, making sure that kids aren't going to bed with their phones and things like that, where we as parents think that they're sleeping or trying to get to sleep, and turns out that they've been looking at YouTube or messaging friends for a couple hours after lights out. So 
Um, so there's no specific um, recommendation that we have to get people out of bed. We've had some people that have had disorders like narcolepsy that adds to the problem where we've given them stimulants that are uh, transcutaneously absorbed. That is, it's like a patch that you put on the skin um, with a stimulant that is slowly absorbed. And sometimes I've had parents apply those to their children that have troubles getting up, but that's in a very small percentage of people with these types of sleep disorders and not appropriate for your average teenager that's having troubles getting up to go to their first period class. Right. Um, and I know that uh, in, well, one thing that I also talk to parents about that has worked for some people is having an electronic um, alarm clock that you as a parent can connect to from your smartphone wherever you are. So there's a couple of different ones on the market from Amazon or Google or different um, uh, devices that you can have that work as alarm clocks, but you can um, access those remotely and you can uh, blast your child's favorite music um, to get them up out of bed, even if you're not home, if you're out, out the door already to your essential job, um, you can uh, even speak to them. Um, so there are some ways to support uh, your child's getting up for class, even if you can't be there in person and you can make it kind of fun sometimes that, you know, everyone, you know, my kids like surprising each other with different um, songs on their <laughs> alarm devices and we can, you know, control it from different parts of the room. So, so whoever is enjoying a certain type of music at a certain moment, we can um, surprise them with that in the morning and sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't, but um, it's uh, something that is an area where technology, I think, can help um, remove some of that burden and stress from, from families and maybe make it a little bit more um, lighthearted. But are there other ways that parents can kind of enlist their teen in helping to manage their own sleep schedule? Um, because I know that kids and teens are more likely to comply when they help to set a rule or a guideline or when they feel more invested. Um, can you talk about that? Well, I think that that, that is where some type of reward system might be, you know, a reasonable approach. I think, again, the most important thing is, is even though it's easier said than done, is ensuring that, that they are going to bed when you think that they're going to bed. If, if truly oh, yeah. uh, a teen has gone to bed at 10 p.m. and, and fallen asleep, within 20 to 30 minutes and it's 6, 7 a.m., they, they should be able to awaken on their own and not have too many difficulties getting up out of bed. So, um, so I think that that's important to, to ensure on the front end that that's occurring. And then again, like I say, is that teenagers commonly try to catch up on weekends by a uh, sleeping in later till noon, even you know, with some kids. I know my kids when they were teenagers would do that. And also they're going to bed later. And so that throws off whatever improvement you've made in adjusting their circadian rhythm. So it's important that they try not to 
vary by more than for sure two hours and ideally one hour their sort of sleep wake schedule on on Friday and Saturday nights. So um, so again, I think that if they're getting seven to eight hours of sleep, then they should be able to get out of bed without you know a whole lot of prodding. I think a lot of the problem is that simply these kids have only obtained four or five hours of sleep and they're still sleepy. They're still in REM sleep during that time and it's difficult to, to, to get them up out of bed. Right, right. They're, they're not done sleeping yet. So, <laughs> so they, they really are a, a zombie. Yeah. Um, so when you say that making sure that they're going to sleep when you think they're going to sleep. So that means, you know, as a parent, if you're turning in at, you know, 10, 30, 11, and you think your teen is, but in reality, they're up on their phone until 3 a.m. It's really, um, that goes back to keeping, you know, setting the downtime on their devices, um, make so that they maybe can't access some of those apps, um, setting the expectation that their phones will um, have a bedtime and that their phones will live outside of their room in terms of chargers and, and um, the expectations around um, screen use at night. Is that kind of um, something that you talk to families about? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, my daughter is 13 and she, her, her phone is set on a downtime at night that, um, that is controlled by me as her parent. And if there's times when she's going to be at a sleepover or like we were traveling and she's like, mom, I want to look through my pictures for the day. You need to adjust my downtime for today so that I can actually see my pictures because it's 930 and you know, my downtime starts at nine. So I did that for her and it was no big deal. It's an ongoing dialogue, but when she gets her, um, when her phone kind of powers back up in the morning, she, she has numerous texts from friends that come in at two and three in the morning. Right. Um, right. And she's, she's 13. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, that is something that is very prevalent and they've actually published studies where they were just simply surveys of kids between the ages of even as young as 10 years old and 18 years um, as it pertains to basically saying yes or no that they're using some type of electronic media, whether it be texting friends or YouTube or social media, significant hours after their parents think that they've gone to sleep. In fact, one study, it was like 80% of the kids, I think, acknowledged that they were using social media two hours after, at least two hours after what they reported as their bedtime without their parents being aware. And I remember when I read that study, my kids were younger and I brought that up to them. And of course, they rolled their eyes and said, of course we do that which was uh, upsetting and bothersome because I'm a sleep specialist, but it is a phenomenon that is a lot more frequent um, than I think we as parents realize. So I think that setting the downtime like you described with your daughter is a, is a great idea. I think it's, but I mean, in, in a lot of parents' cases, these things are evolving so quickly that we are just learning and playing catch up while our, our kids are kind of ahead of us on the curve with some of this. Right. Um, it's helpful uh, for me because my kids are coming of age in an era where this type of thing has been around for a bit. And so I 
sort of um, have started setting some of these things in place before my kids were really on social media, or I guess before they are on social media. Um, but for a lot of parents with kids who are older like yours, it's like you're just, you're, you're really just learning. Um, it, it all, everything changed so quickly um, with social media. And, um, you know, it's definitely evolving and learning as kids learn. And I'm, I'm playing catch up too um, with, with the apps and the, all of the things like that. But for me, it's also um, a realization that um, for kids and for me, really, for adults too, social media is just so much more activating and right. um, mentally than consuming other types of content at, in the evening. So really um, trying to avoid even, you know, social media, um, scrolling feeds, um, even email. I mean, because it just activates these parts of my brain that are associated with work and, and things I need to do in my to-do list and, um, and social relationships and dynamics. And it just makes it so much more difficult um, to wind down. So we talk about that too. Like if you can't sleep, it's okay to watch a show. I'd much rather for them to do that than to, to um, be on social media or texting their friends because they just get, get wired and, and can't wind down. So. Well, even taking that, you know, a few steps further, I think, um, particularly in kids and teenagers, social media also involves bullying as well. And right. maybe not the scope of this, but, but a little bit of, of our conversation. But, um, but that is, a, a, you know, a scenario where um, it can lead to mood disorders like depression and anxiety and things like that. And I've seen that in, um, in patients where, you know, part of their sleep disturbance was related to social media and they were getting on social media at nighttime and being bullied and, and developed um, as part of that anxiety disorder and depression. And, and so all of these things are, uh, are interrelated for sure. Right. And of course, um, sleep deprivation then worsens anxiety. And so then it becomes a cycle. Um, and it seems like that could be a, a big challenge for families. Right. So and I think too, I mean, speaking of the pandemic, and yep. I know we probably talked about this before, but um, is that I think that I think that kids are more concerned about COVID than they let us as parents believe just as it pertains to, you know, the health of their loved ones um, and, um, and, you know, the future as it pertains to school and things like that. And, and, and you know, many of these kids have had, you know, a parent that was laid off from work and, I think that recognition of the psychological impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and, um, and what's happened in our society um, are affecting these kids a lot and uh, more than I think most of us realize and that can translate into sleep disturbance uh, as well. Right, yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. I think as parents, sometimes it's easy to assume that our kids sort of know 
or are processing things that that we know or understand things that we understand, but they are, um, of course, processing things in an entirely different way. And on one hand, they may not be getting a lot of information or they may be hearing about information from their friends um, in terms of what's going to happen with school, what what are the real risks um, of COVID, you know, what um, what's going on in the world, or they may, on the other hand, be getting a lot of information from the news um, media, which is uh, very scary in its own way. So I agree. It's tough to find that balance with kids, and it really depends on their age and how much media they're exposed to. Um, and then some families, you know, of course, it's like you don't want to be talking about it all the time. You want to find some relaxation and um, some sort of point where you can sort of escape from all of that. But I think it is important to kind of keep that conversation going with your kids. Where are they getting their information? If they're worried about something, why? Where did they hear that? You know, um, it's definitely, I'm spending more time talking about it with my kids than I thought that I would have to, but it's, I think it's well, important. Well, for me, it's, it's reminiscent. Uh, my kids were very young um, at the time of 9-11. And right. as you recall, 24-7, uh, it, it was on the news. And, um, and, and it, was, it was very upsetting to my kids. And they had nightmares. And, you know, we, we ended up limiting how much um, they could watch the news during the daytime and sat down and talked about it every day. And I, I don't think that, that the COVID-19 pandemic is, is, I mean, it's different, but, but in certain ways it's very similar. And so I think it's helpful, even though our numbers have dropped significantly, I think we're going to see another bump come winter time. And I think it's just helpful, particularly younger kids in sitting down and talking with them and, and, you know, asking them if they're what what their concerns are, and and uh, you know, in in trying to clarify some of the misinformation that they may be receiving from friends or 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 from the media. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been surprised at how much information um, my kids, um, who are younger, are getting from their friends, and how much they're talking about it, kind of amongst themselves. Um, even with limited social contact with one another um, over the last few months, they're still managing to get a lot of misinformation about what's going to happen with school and, you know, what, what is the outlook. And, um, and so, it, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think in some ways now kids are probably more connected to their peers um, than ever so that information can just um, spread like, like wildfire. Um, so it is important yeah to keep that conversation going and to ask a lot of questions as parents like you said what, what are your concerns what are your fears and um and then maybe i mean relating it back to sleep um maybe journaling or doing some things or some rituals to sort of um ground things a little bit in a sense of um peace and comfort at night. Um, do something that you can do to alleviate some of those fears so that they don't um, impact sleep as much. Is, do you recommend like journaling or um, just kind of disconnecting from electronics or, or how can families kind of strike that balance between communicating about these things, but then also maintaining a space 
where they can sort of escape from the stress and anxiety of it um, around bedtime. Right. It, you know, it depends on the individual, but, but for sure, we, for example, in adults, um, emphasize, particularly if they are having troubles getting to sleep, that they allow for themselves to have some wind down time, so to speak, before they go to bed and turn out the lights. And again, as it pertains to the pandemic, a lot of people have shifted their work schedules so that they are often working up until an hour or so before they plan to go to bed and they're very activated during those times. And so it's only natural to have some difficulties getting to sleep and, and, and you can apply that same logic to kids and that doing homework right up until bedtime is probably not a good idea because it's activating and, you know, some kids sit there and they think about, well, did I complete that homework project properly or not? And, and that can interfere with sleep. So I think that um, giving yourself some sort of relaxation time, and I would say at least two hours before when you get into bed is helpful. Again, I think refraining from electronic media, particularly within two hours of bed, is a good idea because it's activating. Um, and as we talked about, some of the wavelength of light that's emitted from those types of of media are stimulating like the blue light. Um, and so I think that reading or watching television or writing in a journal, I think it's a, I think it's a great idea um, before bedtime. Right, and do you recommend um, blue light blocking glasses? Those have gotten pretty inexpensive, um, I've noticed, um, and they're becoming pretty popular. Are this something that you recommend? Yeah, the problem is that we don't know how well they do block blue light. Um, and, and same with, uh, you know, most computer screens and iPads now technically have a nighttime screen that, that filters out some of right. the blue light. Yeah. Night shift but, or whatever it's called, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think that it's better than nothing, but truthfully, there was a, recent article on this topic stating that none of the manufacturers of these types of blue light glasses or um, or filters on uh, computer screens have actually shown data that they do filter out that wavelength of light that's activating but they probably do to some degree but um, but I'm not sure you know, I'm not sure it's 100%. Oh, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I think as, yeah, as consumers, I guess we're just kind of putting a lot of faith in the fact that these products have been tested when, you know, they probably haven't. Um, well, it reminds me, for whatever reason, of these activity monitoring devices like Fitbits and mm -hmm. yeah. um, things such as that, where none of them have been validated as it pertains to uh, monitoring depth of sleep. And so we have sort of a love-hate relationship with those types of devices in that we think that they're pretty decent at differentiating wake from sleep, but not so much at differentiating stage one sleep from REM sleep. Right. So, I actually did a whole feature on this exact topic um, on slow wave sleep and did um, 
talk to uh, the folks at Fitbit and um, and it did some pretty in-depth uh, digging on this very topic. And yes, um, that's exactly what I found. The science is getting better, but that um, people, you just really can't rely on what uh, your, your device tells you about how much deep sleep you're getting, um, it, but pretty reliable when it comes to distinguishing um, wake from sleep. That's but, right. Yeah, pretty interesting. Um, we can't always take that stuff at, at face value for sure. Um, and so in terms of helping kids kind of get back on to get the school year off to a good start, and for me, it's all about reducing stress on families, um, not giving them something else to worry about. Uh, so is there, are there any other things that you wanted to mention that could help people um, uh, kind of get get on top of this issue, help help their kids get up in the morning without creating a lot of extra stress during this time of year? Yeah, I think, again, I, I sound like a broken record talking about schedule, but but kids, particularly younger kids, thrive on, you know, on being in some sort of scheduled sort of environment. And I think it pertains to sleep as well. And so I think that, you know, getting on a regular schedule is important, not um, breaking the rules on the weekends, having the parents, particularly during the pandemic where their schedule is thrown off, try to get on a schedule and be good role models uh, is I think very important. And, uh, and then, you know, minimizing exposure to social media and electronic devices, um, you know, after bedtime hours, I think, I think those are the key points as far as I'm concerned as it pertains to kids getting back to school. And the bottom line is they're all going to have trouble for the first, even though it takes, as we talked about, about a week, for the first couple of weeks, they're going to have troubles adjusting. But uh, and realizing that school's already starting, uh, you know, I was going to say that if it was a month from now that school was going to start getting them on a schedule, you know, in advance um, is helpful if you're able to do that. Right. I think um, when this comes out, I think school will just have started in some parts of King County and then in Pierce County starting next week, but some kids are are back already. So uh, yeah, and expecting some setbacks over those first few weeks where kids are kind of then sleeping more on the weekends and then you have to course correct and you know, yeah, so it, it takes a while. I guess having having grace and patience during those first few weeks definitely helps you get through. That's right. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add or where can people learn more about you and, and your work or even um, come to visit you if they're in the Seattle area? Yeah, um, they can, um, you know, I'm part of the of Overlake Medical Center and the Overlake Medical Clinics in Bellevue, Washington. And um, in, there's information about myself and, and the Sleep Disorder Center. Um, the website is overlakehospital.org. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, so they can get that information and schedule an appointment if they would like. Um, be happy to see them. All right. Well, thank you again for being here. Thanks for sharing your, your expertise, both as a, as a parent and a sleep physician. Um, I really appreciate your time. Sounds good. Thank you, Malia. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks so much for listening. That's our episode. And I want to wish you best of luck in your back to school journey, whatever that may look like. There's so much uncertainty about what this year will look like. And whenever things are uncertain, I think it's important to take note of the things that we do know for sure. For this year, we know that this fall will be different than this spring in terms of remote learning. Um, Our schools and districts and students and families are a little bit better prepared and things will go down a little bit differently than they did in the spring. Um, We may not know exactly what it will look like, but we know that it'll look different. Um, We also know that our current situation won't last forever. I think that's important when things feel stressful or when students are stressed out about the uncertainty to remember that this is temporary. And another thing we know for sure is that we will definitely get through it. And of course, we do know that it is easier when we have all had enough sleep. When we feel our best, or at least good enough, um, we are better prepared to face whatever the day holds and whatever the school year holds. And I also do want to point out that it is never my goal to add stress or make uh, add another to-do to anyone's list. Um, sometimes the best we can do is just show up. Um, it's okay to be tired. It's okay to not be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And um, it's okay to just do the best that you can. Um, and if that means getting everyone onto a back-to-school sleep routine before school starts, that's awesome. If that means playing catch-up over the course of the month or um, trying to figure it out as you go, that's absolutely fine too. It's all about just doing what you can and trying to add a little enjoyment and fun throughout the day and just enjoying your family and and trying not to stress out about it. And I'm here to help. You can find me at Malia at sleepwellstable.com, maliajacobson.com, and more about the podcast and show notes at sleepwellstaywell.com, as well as on all the social media channels. Next week, we will be back with an episode that has more of a grown-up focus. We'll be talking about menopause and andropause and how sleep is impacted during these life phases. Until then, please enjoy your first week of September, and please sleep well and stay well. Thanks. Bye-bye. It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Now you know. Thanks for checking out the show.